All right, uh, let me introduce you to a quick slide here that, that should be something that is ingrained upon our eyelids, if you will, our, our eyes, as we read through Scripture. Because we're going we're gonna to experience something here as we press into this next little section of Exodus, in Exodus chapter 32. But in every passage, there are gospel features. And they're not all featured exactly in the same way. But, uh, you know, we're, I think we're indebted to a man who wrote a really simple book, uh, Greg Gilbert, uh, about the gospel. And he identified these four components, if you will. God, I'm sure he's not the first to do this. God, man, Christ, and a response to what we've heard and who we observe that to be. And passages take you into these realities. So we learn something about God in some passages in ways that define life, define our expectations, frame for us how do we approach this God, how do we relate to this God, what does life mean in light of God being the way this passage shows him to be. The passage we're going to learn from today is a passage about man. It's going to reveal something to us about man. And we're going to learn by staring back into this event, 1450 BC, and learn from these lives. But what we're going to learn here today is that our lives are not different than their lives. And the things that characterize them and they struggled with are things that characterize us and that we struggle with. So how is this extremely helpful? Well, you know, you live in a loud culture that's teaching you every moment theology and doctrine. Every moment. Every time you read a billboard. Every time you tune into a newscast, it's no longer a newscast. It's a commentary moment. Every time you accidentally trip over an Oprah saying, every time you get around something in this world, it is teaching you how to see those things. Because the gospel is the story of all stories. It's what this book is about. And so if you get a wrong view of man, and today there's lots of wrong view of man out there, you will find yourself in a place where you don't need the gospel. You just need God or people or somebody to come alongside of you and, and just give you a little pep talk. Encourage you on your way. You just need somebody to believe in you. That's what you're being taught out there. And so when you hear something that doesn't sound like it's real affirming and real, boy, aren't you the greatest thing since sliced bread? When you stop hearing that, it feels like, ooh, that's, ooh, that's unflattering. That's not kind. That's not good. Well, you know what we're going to read about these folks today? It's not real pleasant to hear. I'm sure if they were here with us today, they'd be a little embarrassed that this is, this is wow, that's what was recorded from our lives. But the reality is, this is a description of man. And quite honestly, if it doesn't describe you, well, then you don't need the gospel. I'm not sure why you're here this morning. But if it does describe us, wow, we really do need this gospel. Exodus chapter 32 before I start reading the passage here, remember what's happening. We get us up to date here. Remember, right? We have rescued out of Egypt. We've come to Mount Sinai. They parked at the base of the mountain. Moses goes up and down the mountain a couple of times. Exodus chapter 20, God is going to speak from the mountain. And he's going to reveal his ten commandments to the people. So he's gathered his audience. He's interacted with Moses. And now he speaks to the people. 
and it freaks them out and they get all scared and they all say, hey, don't let God speak to us anymore. Moses, you do the speaking and, and just let us know what God says. So God's presence was powerful and intimidating. And then God, uh, Moses is going to go up on the mountain and he's going to spend time on this mountain. Right? And I'm not going to read these passages to you, but in Exodus chapter 24, you're going to get Moses going up the mountain and spending 40 days with God on the mountain. And in those 40 days, God is going to give him a handwritten copy of the Ten Commandments. And all that stuff we were studying before the summer, the tabernacle and all of its details, all that's going to get disclosed to Moses during that 40-day visit with God. But, but here's the timetable. From Passover in Egypt, where they celebrate the Passover meal in the land of Goshen, and we're packing our bags and we're ready to go. Remember that event quite a while ago? And that was quite a while ago by way of passages, but it wasn't quite a while ago by way of time. It's about 50 days from Passover in Goshen to Exodus chapter 20, where God meets face to face with these people and reveals his Ten Commandments. About 50 days, right? So we're less than two months from all the fireworks, all the display in Egypt, all the miracles, all the wow. And then they get to Mount Sinai and it's a whole other scene of God reverberating and noise and fire and smoke and the presence of God and another wow moment takes place. And then Moses goes up on the mountain for 40 more days. And somewhere in those 40 days, chapter 32 happens. Now while Moses is up on the mountain, God's revealing himself to Moses in incredible ways. And he's getting the law dictated and put down. And he's getting the tabernacle, the revelation that God wants to dwell amongst his people. He's getting some serious, wonderful stuff. But at the base of the mountain, somewhere in those 40 days, and I don't think it's day 39, because I don't think they could have done all this on day 39. The hearts of these people is in a totally different place. But it's important for you to get the time frame, because I find 50 days ago is not that long ago. I find... The moment of Exodus 20 where the presence of God shows up on the mountain in such a way that it causes these people to say, Hey Moses, let's not do that again. We're good with there being a God and we're good with you talking to him. But when he talks to us, it freaks us out. We're less than 40 days away from that. And we read this passage. Exodus 32 verse 1. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So Aaron said to them, Take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, your sons, your daughters, and and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold and were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, He built an altar before it. And Aaron made proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. 
And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Well, Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you that this word never runs out of gas. It never becomes a meaningless, unimpacting word. God, it touches our lives. It brings light into our darkness. It awakens our souls. And so, Holy Spirit, only you can lead us into the truth. Only you can take our hearts over and into places that we might not want to go sometimes. But you can bring us there. And we trust that you will this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, interesting condition here. Interesting revelation here. We get the timing of where they are. God's dealings. The the setting here. The setting here is ripe, isn't it? You've had signs and wonders and power put on display. You have no question whether or not this God is incredible. You've got, you know, a 10 and 0 battle against the gods of Egypt. Where God takes on, because there was multiple gods in Egypt. And, and by the way, that's part of what is influencing this gathering for them at this moment. They weren't used to a God who demanded exclusivity. The Gentiles weren't used to that either. When you get into the New Testament, when you get it throughout all the scriptures, that's the one thing that the God of the Bible has going with him, that the other gods, that whether you're talking Greek mythology or, or whether you're talking gods of Egypt, They didn't have that exclusivity factor. They didn't demand that they be the only God. They were one among many. And so when they get to this God at the mountain, he's an exclusivity God, right? He doesn't allow there to be any other gods. Well, because he would happen to know that there aren't really any other gods. But for these guys, they're not catching that super fast. So they've come out of this setting seen an incredible display of the power of God. They have had the covenant love of God wrapped around them. Right? Now, please don't miss this because, and you might be tempted because next week when we get into God's response to this, you might overlook this easily. But the idea that in this moment, these guys are going to turn idolatrous. What, what, what's so bad about this moment that makes idolatry the right response for these guys? Well, they have, they've seen the power of God. This God who's in their life, he's capable of doing whatever he wants in amazing ways at a level we've never seen before. So it's not as though they've gotten to Mount Sinai and they're going, you know, is there a better deal? Hey, before we sign this one, maybe there's a better God out there we could get a deal with. That, that, that's not happening. They're scared of God, but they've had a God present himself to them that says, I am the The loving covenant God that your forefathers knew. I made a commitment to them and I am honoring it today. I have rescued you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage, and I have brought you to myself. This is an affection from God. I have made you my own people. So not only did they have power spilled on them at Mount Sinai, but they had love spilled on them as well. And this is their response. And and look at all it took before you get too impressed with humanity. Verse 1. When the people saw that Moses delayed. He delayed. How long did he delay? 
few weeks. Right? I mean, he's 40 days on the mountain. So, at most, at some point this kicks in. At some point, Moses would go up the mountain, come back down the mountain, and we're like, he's good. We're good to go. Delight begins to let them wonder, what, what will we do? What do we do next? How do we respond to life? But this delay thing, I, I, I love this because I don't know how you are, but I can identify with these people. Delay. That's all it takes, isn't it? Delay. Just let something take a little bit too long. I'm thinking, if this is their response, can you imagine if you and I visited the foot of Mount Sinai? I mean, they've got, you know, there's no microwave ovens. There's no fast food. They can't do online banking. I mean, <laughs> delay. They were used to delay. Everything was slow motion for them. They walked everywhere, for goodness sake. They didn't pick the phone up and call somebody. There was no instant texting. Everything took forever. I mean, you load up a pigeon and hope he comes back. You know, here, send this to my friend. Go. You know, months later, did the pigeon make it to you? You know, they knew delay. Everything was a delay for them. Can you imagine? Listen, what are you learning about the human heart right here? And how much worse is it for us? I mean, if, if, if they couldn't hang in there for 40 days, I don't know if 40 minutes might be a challenge for us. So we are having to learn, they are having to learn to trust this God that they don't know very well. And the moment there's a little distance or the activity slows up a little bit around them, they freak out. Right? And they take matters into their own hands. None of us ever do that, right? God's not honoring our timetable, our expectations. So when he falls short of what we have designed these circumstances to look and feel like, we begin to back up. And and what they did in response, they pull Aaron to the side and they say, make us gods. That will go before us. Now you have, you have a real revelation into their hearts here. All right? So delay didn't just mean they got bored. Right? There's something more going on here. I mean, if they got bored, and that's the issue. It's like, hey, we're just sitting around doing nothing. There's no record here of, and then the people invented card playing. You know? They played their first round of golf ever in the human life. You know? They didn't invent something. Monopoly doesn't come from this moment. Right? We're just sitting around twiddling our thumbs. Let's just make up something to kill time. That's not the issue, is it? It's when there's delay in this scheme of life. We were headed somewhere. We know there's a destination. We know trouble is in this world along the way. Who's going to go before us? And what they invent here is not just another man, right? We don't know where this Moses guy went. This Moses guy led us here. He's gone. Let's pick another one. Notice they don't pick a man here, do they? They want a God to go before them. There's something in the human heart that when pressure and life gets on it in a certain way, it cries out for a God. That's very, very, very important. That explains a lot about why we are the way we are. Why we live the way we do. When you get squeezed, you know, the old toothpaste illustration, you squeeze a toothpaste tube, what comes out of it is what was in it. Right? And when life squeezes you, what comes out of you is what was in you. 
And what came out of them was idolatry. When life began to squeeze. So let's explore something about idolatry here for a moment. Exploring the human propensity to idolatry. This is central to humanity. This is central to the people that God has made. And it's central to us as well. First point there is man's looking to something or someone else. Hold on to that phrase because I think that's the heart of idolatry. Idolatry has to do with what it is that you and I look to. And this is a creaturely instinct. Right? It is in us by nature that we are creatures. We are not the creator. We are creatures. And as creatures, there is an instinct, an impulse in us to look for a God out there. So we want to look to something, right? Real quick definition, what is an idol? Well, an idol is something or someone that we look to. To play the role God is supposed to be playing to us and for us. And you hang on to that. What is an idol? What's an idol for you or for me? It is something or it is someone that we look to. Right? So there's some looking going on here. There's some hope and there's some expectation here. And we're looking for that thing to do for us what God has reserved the right to do for us. Tim Keller in his excellent book. I hope at some point in your life you read this. I don't think you can go to heaven until after you've read this book by the way. Uh, Counterfeit Gods. He says anything you seek to give you what only God can give. That's what an idol is. And, and here's what's interesting. How does, how does that get in? How does this seeking, this longing, this reaching get in us? Well, it's part of being a creature. Right? If you and I revisit Eden and we go back to the creative moment where God makes Adam and he sets him in this garden and eyes open and he sees the wonder of the world but all kinds of unknowns and uncertainties. There's a future, but boy, what, what does all that mean? And there's stuff here. And I, you know, what does that stuff do? And, and is that good for me, bad for me? How do I use that? I mean, just a, a world full of questions is in him. And he's a creature. Where, where is he going to get the insight to do life from? Well, in some ways, he was, he was made, if you will, deficient. I think I put this in the outline. He is not designed for self-sufficiency. He's not made for self-sufficiency. He's designed to feel incomplete, in need, to feel lacking in some way. He is wired to seek out completion, satisfaction, wholeness, well, wellness, provision, He's he's wired that way. So God doesn't make him a God. He makes him a creature. A creature needing something outside of himself. So he is in this world with an, an inner impulse to seek a God. That's in him. He can't turn it off. It will travel with him all of his existence. It will surpass Adam and it will come to you and to me as an inner impulse every one of us has. The creator made us creatures who need something. Now, idolatry introduces us to the idea that we can get what we need apart from God. That's what idolatry does. First thing God does at Mount Sinai. First thing he does at Mount Sinai is address this issue. It's the first order of business. Before God says anything else to humanity, he gathers them at the foot of Mount Sinai. He introduces who he is and he establishes this criteria. 
I am Yahweh. Right? I'm not some force. I'm not something you made up. I'm a personal being that has existed before you ever existed. I am Yahweh. I am. Always been. I'm present tense. I'm continuous. Right? So God says a loaded thing here. But the first priority for the creature he made is, and you, what? Shall have no other gods beside me or before me, depending on your translation. But both of them are pretty important concepts. Because the Egyptians would have had one God beside one God beside one God beside one God. They had all kinds of gods. God says, uh-uh, not with me. With me, there is an exclusivity. I sit in your life in a way that nothing else does. First order of business. Right? I mean, this, you know, there's no small talk with God in this moment, right? He doesn't, hey, how was the drive over? You know? Traffic, how was the desert? Did y'all enjoy that? How's the manna? Not bad, huh? I mean, there's no pleasantry. There's no, let me just interact over a few things. There's a whole bunch of stuff that's going to come after this. We're going to live for a year at Mount Sinai and God's going to reveal one thing after another. But first order of business for every human being is to hear this. You're a creature and I'm the creator and I'm number one or everything else goes bad in your life and in this world. If you get that one thing wrong, you'll get everything else wrong. I promise you that. So first order of business for God is that. And this is a massive issue. It's a massive issue for them, but it's a massive issue for you and me. You, you and I are made incomplete, unsatisfied, itchy on the inside, longing for, crave. This, all this stuff is in you. You didn't ask for it. You didn't stand in line to get it. You didn't go to Amazon.com. It just came with your existence. You're a creature. And that's in you. And you woke up this morning and that impulse was going off on the inside of you. That's what it was doing. And you're going to wake up tomorrow morning and it's going to be going off on the inside of you. And my question is, what are you doing to manage that? Do you have a biblical strategy to manage that? That is who you are. I got to tell you, there's lots of us in the Christian universe who are ignorant to that. And life comes at us. And we're aware that that thing got labeled no-no. That's a no-no. My grandma said that's a no-no. The church says that's a no-no. And this is about the level that we play in this world. Somebody acts like that's not supposed to be done by Christians. And so we just kind of make a decision about what kind of stuff is on our list of okay and what kind of stuff is not on our list of okay. And that's about as deep as we get. Well, that's a shame, right? Because there's a whole lot more here. And quite honestly... If all you got is lists of that's okay and this isn't okay and you're trying to navigate the Christian universe, you are making an enormous mistake. Because I can almost guarantee you, you picked that list up from people who made half of them for you. But the biggest thing you're overlooking is, do you understand why these things become problems? Is because inside of you, you're a creature with an instinct to worship things. Every day you wake up and it's an impulse to look to something. You are going to look to something. You did it when you got up today. You'll do it tomorrow. You'll do it when you get back from vacation. You'll do it after you graduate college. You're going to look to something. And the question is, what exactly are you going to look to? And so God says, 
Rule number one, issue number one, you shall have no other gods besides me. Nothing else will sit in your life the way I sit in your life. Because if you do, all the other rules fall apart. You break all these commandments the second you break that one. You stop honoring the people in your life. You start using the people in your life. And and once you start using them, because rather than serve God with your life, you begin to serve whatever idol is in your life. And then people become tools and pawns. And so we, we steal from them if it serves my idol. We commit adultery if it serves my idol. We lie if it serves my... Understand, if you get number one wrong, you get them all messed up. So this is not like an equal set of ten commandments. Number one sits number one. And it informs everything else we do in our lives. Wouldn't be a good message if I didn't at some point quote something about the Lord of the Rings. My kids would be disappointed if nothing else. You get one wrong, it will corrupt everything else. Listen to this, very insightful. Mr. Keller says, The central plot device of the Lord of the Rings is the dark Lord Sauron's ring of power, which corrupts anyone who tries to use it, however good his or her intentions The ring is what Professor Tom Shippey calls a psychic amplifier, which takes the heart's fondest desires and magnifies them to idolatrous proportions. So that that brings us into a different realm of idolatry, doesn't it? Because I say the word idolatry and our minds go in a particular direction. It goes in the direction of, of tiki items and images and stuff and people from third world countries have, you know, dressed up in their town square. There's one really thing that you won't find in America, but there's idolatry everywhere here. And the other thing is idolatry is bad. It's always bad. So we, we think bad stuff. So we're thinking about serving bad stuff. But this is helpful because it's not always bad stuff that becomes idols to us. Some good characters in the book want to liberate slaves or preserve their people's land or visit wrongdoers with punishment. These are all good objectives. But the ring makes them willing to do Anything to achieve them. Anything at all. It turns the good thing into an absolute that overturns every other allegiance or value. It turns a good thing into an absolute that overturns every other allegiance or value. Which, by the way, is exactly what God was intending to do when he comes to our lives. Put God in that. God is intending to overturn every other allegiance or value. When you come to Christ, when you get saved, I don't know what your view of of getting saved was. I know a lot of people come from a lot of different backgrounds and wherever you got saved and however you got saved. But did you realize that was God's intention? It's his number one concern. You shall have no other gods in the same league with me. Nothing will sit in the same realm with me in your heart and in your life. He intends by that to overturn every other value that you and I have. Every other loyalty that you and I have. Every other reason that I have to get up and live my life for that thing, that person. I mean, what are you going to do next in that category? Well, God intends to have the power in our lives to overturn your allegiance in that. Overturn what you're comfortable with in that. Overturn what you're familiar with in that. God intends to sit in our lives at that kind of a level. Unfortunately, we're creatures with an impulse toward idolatry. 
So something else can sit there and it will take over that role. It says the wearer of the ring becomes increasingly enslaved and addicted to it. For an idol is something we cannot live without. We must have it and therefore it drives us to break rules. We once honored to harm others and even ourselves in order to get it. Idols are spiritual addictions that lead to terrible evil in Tolkien's novel and real life. I appreciate the fact that he found in this, this passage, this quote thought here, that he put in the same sentence, addictions and idols. Because our world talks a lot about addictions, doesn't it? The books out there galore. Our world does not talk very much about idols, though, does it? Apart from American Idol. You don't ever even hear the term, right? Long before anybody was discussing addictions, God was discussing idols. Let me just make this point, a little subtle point along the way here. Giving into a sin may be related, often is related to idolatry, but it's not necessarily the same thing as idolatry. So I'll try and clarify that in a moment. Idolatry sits in your life in much more of a controlling way. Because it begins to dominate your value system and your priorities and your affections and your hopes. Because you look to it. We don't always invest our look to component in some activity of sin that we might enact every once in a while. We do that. That may not be an idol at all. Maybe associated with an idol. Maybe it's not. But idolatry has this ability to create these strong places in our lives. And we begin to be habitually connected to them. Well, you know, habits and addictions are same sides of one coin. Two sides of one coin, aren't they? The things that we habitually do. And you'll find the Bible addresses addict-like behavior associated with idolatrous type desires. So I think that word addiction, it's strength, it's dominance, it's rewriting the script of your life kind of stuff is because there's an idol in us that we might need to learn that we have to manage it. And and you'll see that in behaviors. A drug, alcohol addict is serving something that demands to be served in their life and that they cooperate with serving. And I know, I've interacted with a lot of addicts and and alcoholics and folks like that. And and there's, at one level, there's this lip presentation of, I I really don't want to do this. And I, I think at some level that's true. But at another level, the fact that you do it one more time tells me, yes, you do. Because I tend to not do the things that I really don't want to do. But I tend to do the things that I really do want to do. So there's an idol who somehow has got his hooks in me that said, Keith, there's reward in this. There's good in this. There's feel good. There's pleasure. There's purpose or hope or whatever it is that I tap into in that moment. And once that thing climbs the ladder and gets to number one and tells God, move over. I'm here now. Move over, God. All the other commands of God begin to topple one after another. An addict almost, a drug addict, alcohol addict, almost never just destroys their own life. If they're young enough, or even if they're not, they begin to dishonor their parents and drag their parents through hell. 
Why would you ever do that to your parents? Well, because I have an idol that's number one. Dragging family members, spouses get dragged through this. I stood at an altar with you and I said, I do. I'm going to lay my life down. I'm going to serve you. I'm going to give you everything that I am. As, as until that idol bumps God out of the way and then I'm going to serve that at your expense. That's what I'm going to do. And lots of addictions are this way, aren't they? Porn addictions are this way. The level of darkness and deceit. The level of disruption in a marriage that that brings if you're a married person. If you're not a married person, you're, you're preparing yourself to destroy someone else. You think you're, you're doing something in private by yourself. I, I have not met many guys who didn't decide to work out at the gym of pornography that don't end up later wrecking other people's lives with it. You, you can't. You can't trade your allegiance. You can't be allied with something like that's a pleasure that I'm after at the expense of God and think there's no consequences. That's not the world you live in. There are consequences that are going to show up in your life. But idolatry comes in all kinds of forms and fashions. Just let a teenager fall in love in your home. I mean, all of a sudden, the value, whatever value system they had last week, upside down, right? All of a sudden, you went from being the parents who have provided everything in their lives, who have loved them and let them throw up on you, and you've stayed up all night with them, and you've worked on homework that you can't stand looking at again ever in your life. You thought you were done with that when you graduated college, but you're not writing papers that you really don't want to write. I mean, so this is your world and they are loyal and connected and then they fall in love. And it all flips upside down. And now you don't even get to know, not telling you, keep this hidden, right? Let me treat you in a dishonorable way, right? Commandments call on us to honor our mother and our father. Well, it's a dishonor to your mother and your father for you to live in the dark. So you dishonor them when you do that. To be hostile toward them. To almost set up this military zone around this relationship. That if you sense your parents are getting too close to it, it's like weapons begin to get raised. Tanks begin to pull to the front lines. You know, this antagonism begins to come out. What's happening here? Um, The pleasure of belonging to someone. Of acceptance. Of I'm special, like nobody else is special in your life, even though you're just 17 and, you know, do you drive yet? But it doesn't matter. You're so important to me. Everything about the way you make me feel matters to me at a giant level. And that thing kind of climbs the ladder and it looks over at God and it says, move over. I'm here now. And the next thing you knew, that whole teenager's life is about serving that idol at the expense of all kinds of other things in their life. That this is the nature of idolatry. And you, you know, you watch these guys here. Look at, look at chapter, verse 2 there. You know, we, we learn, right? We learn our idols. We learn what to look to. What are you, you going to look to? 
What are you going to look to? And you're an American. You're obviously not going to look to the, the cow gods of Egypt, right? They had multiple ones that lived in the lands of Egypt that were related to cows, or they were cows, or they were footstools of cows. I mean, all kinds of cow stuff happening in this land. I would, I would dare bet... If you're going to choose an idol, it ain't going to be uh, Apis, you know, from Egypt. That's probably not who you're going to choose. But that's who they chose, which is insightful, right? Look at verse 2. Aaron said to them, take off all your rings of gold, your ears, and your wives, your children. Bring them to me. So all the people took off their rings of gold, brought them to Aaron. He received the gold from their hand, and he fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. Now, this is significant, right? Why do, you, why do you pick a golden calf? Well, because that's what Egypt was into. That's the gods that were in the land. And that's insightful about man, right? When man goes to find another god, because instinctively, impulsively, there's something in him that wants to do that, he just lifts his eyes up and looks at what's everybody else into. And they learn to find their gods from the land. Douglas Stewart says, we should remember that just a few months prior to this incident, the Israelites and the other ethnic groups among them were still living in Egypt, deeply influenced by its pagan culture, just as they had been for hundreds of years. They had all grown up in a society devoted to the religious system and way of life known as idolatry. And they were understandably, though by no means excusably, not yet used to the rigorous anti-idolatry demands of Yahweh's covenant with them. Right? This idea that they now are in a relationship with a God that demands exclusivity, demands to be number one, demands that nothing sit next to him, equal with him, or near him. For his own glory and for our good. Well, they weren't used to that. They hadn't met a God like that before. Because the attractions of idolatry for them were so strong, and their recent stance against it so derivative and new, they were, in fact, not at all genuinely committed to its eradication in their beliefs and practices, as the present passage demonstrates all too clearly. They grew up in a land of idolatry. And what you learn about idolatry here is you can take the people out of Egypt... A whole lot faster and easier than you can take Egypt out of the people. That might be a good thing to hold on to, right? Before you and I sit here, and I'm I'm very tempted to look at these knuckleheads and go, man, what a bunch of knuckleheads, huh? Until I recognize you can take people out of America a lot easier and faster than you can take America out of people. Because we have our own little set, don't we? Of stuff that lingers with us, of value systems. We're not looking to fashion life in the light of a bull, but we've got other things. Tim Keller says, we think that idols are, are bad things, but that's almost never the case. The greater the good, the more likely we are to expect that it can satisfy our deepest needs and hopes. Anything can serve as a counterfeit God, especially the very best things in life. It can be family and children. Or career and making money. Or achievement and critical acclaim. Or saving face and social standing. It can be a romantic relationship. Peer approval. Competence and skill. Secure and comfortable circumstances. Your beauty. Or your brains. 
a greater political or social cause, your morality and virtue, or even success in the Christian ministry. Any of these things are candidates to climb the ladder, look over at God and say, move over. I will now be what he or she looks to in order to figure out whether life is good. There's a future. There's a hope. There's a reason for joy this morning when you woke up. I'll be the one who determines that. All right, now you look in your life just for a second here. Because all it's going to take is the right moment. And for them, the right moment was delay and uncertainty. That's all it took for them. They just, they're cruising through life. They're doing amazing things, experiencing God. And into their life comes this injection of delay and uncertainty. And those two ingredients were enough to turn them upside down and let a little golden calf be discovered in their hearts. So I'm not sure what it, what it is for, for us that takes up that place. But if you shop around your life for a sense of, of peace, shop around for future hope, shop around for joy in your life, and, and see what's standing close by those things. Just If you do that, right, this is a good covenant group leader question. You guys taking notes, you covenant group leaders? That's a good question to ask. Because, you know, whatever is sitting on the sofa next to joy for you is probably what you are looking to. And I, I can't have joy in my life until that thing is served correctly or it's in the right shape or what's going on with it is to my liking. It's offering me a future that I like that. This is going in a good direction. I got a smile on my face now. Because that thing has nudged God out of the way. Because having God couldn't put a smile on your face, right? How many unsmiling Christians do we have here today? I mean, I got God, but I don't have anything to have joy about. Really? Yeah, unfortunately. Wow, who's sitting on your sofa with you? What's become an idol for you? Right, you know, careful tip on discovering idolatry here. What Aaron did with this, and you can see it in the rest of this passage, what Aaron did was he, he actually created an image and he built an altar and he, the people actually looked to this idol. So I, I think for something to be an idol, it, it's a little bit more than it's just in your life. It's got to be something you actually look to, that you build a, a holy place of your expectations for it, of your hopes Get invested in that thing somehow. And you look to that thing in that way. Now, if you're not doing that with it, I, I don't know that it qualifies to be called an idol. Right? And this is where, you know, let's be more biblical than we are, you know, surfacey Christian Americans who learned a list of do's and don'ts from people who made them up. Right? So I'll go walking into, you, walking into your house and, you know, you've got some Polynesian tiki thing that you collected sitting out by your pool. I wonder where you got that. You had a trip to Asia or something. I'm like, honey, idol worship in this house. Um, no, probably not. Right? I don't I mean I don't think you're like Wednesday night. Hey, everybody, clear out Wednesday night. We gotta go out back by the pool and bow down to the tiki. You know. <laughs> Because we're, we're looking to that dude to come through for us. You know, now that's what they were doing with this situation. But we're Americans. We're, we're scientific. We're technologically bound. Nobody's this dumb. Right? 
We build iPhones. We don't, we don't build little golden calves. We build huge bank accounts. We don't build little golden calves. We do a whole different thing when we build idols. But what's key in it is it has to do with what your heart bows down to. Is what you look to. So, you know, it's more likely... Heck, I don't know. You could have a Buddha sitting on a shelf. It's more likely that you're worshiping that pottery barn sofa. <laughs> that you really, really had to have, right? I mean, because, you know, your house has got to have a certain feel and decoration to it. Because I'm looking to that. That means something to me. The Buddha, I don't even know if he's there anymore. I don't even know where I got that. Uncle so-and-so traveled to Asia once and gave that to us. That's not an idol in your heart. Now, it may be something that's associated with something that's displeasing or unbiblical. That's a different topic. But in your heart, right? It's unlikely, you know, let me pick on the teenage girls again here. It's unlikely that the teenage girl who's going to Bacchus is, God, Bacchus is an idol, I don't know, Bacchus, you know, it's the god of wine. It's god of wine, Keith. It's an idol. Uh, I would bet you she's not looking to that thing. But long before she got in the car to go to Bacchus, it's her boyfriend you ought to be worried about. Because <laughs> she's looking to that. That's become life-defining. That is, do I have a good life or does it just stink? Oh, do I have a boyfriend or not? Well, that's the defining thing. Do I fit in the right group? See, there's different idols it's what you look to that makes something an idol. All right, this is important. Let me hit this last little section here. here. Here's a sobering, sobering, sobering reality about idolatry. In this world, not just true for them, true for us as well. So whether you are visiting Sinai or you're pulling up alongside King Solomon, or you are looking in the New Testament, idolatry never stops being an issue. It crosses the great dividing line of Old Testament and New Testament, which for many of us, we understand that's a, that's a massive great wall of China theologically. When you go from the Old Testament to the New Testament, you enter a different realm. Well, can I just let you know, idolatry goes with you into the New Testament as well. It's not just a third world Old Testament problem. It is traveling with us, right? So you fast forward here, these guys in Exodus. God's going to do something. We'll see him respond next week. So idolatry gets addressed and he clarifies the issues again. And then you go about 100 years and you get to Joshua chapter 24, verse 14. And you hear this. Here we are 100 years later. Now, therefore, Joshua says to the people, fear the Lord. And serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods that your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt. And serve the Lord. Put away the other gods. For goodness sake, a hundred years later. And what's really shocking about this is do you know what he's referring to when he says beyond the river? These are Abraham's gods. Hundreds of years earlier before the exodus. So that God's in Egypt, but the people of God had absorbed Abraham's gods and took them with them into Egypt. And a hundred years later, there's remnants of both sets of gods among people. It's a powerful thing to learn things from your relatives, isn't it? Don't ever forget that. What they are confronting in this passage 
is stuff that was handed to them, traditions born in their families. Right? Judges chapter 2, right? we just fast forward a little bit. Verse 11, the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. Now you've got a whole other set of idols here. These were, the, these were the idols that were in Canaan. And they're going to serve them next. So they've got Abraham's idols traveling with them. They've got Egypt's idols traveling in their hearts. And then they get to Canaan and they pick up a few more. And they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went after other gods from among the gods of the peoples. Listen, if you just pay attention to this, this is a little detail that escapes us quite often. There's lots of impressive people in the Bible who had idol problems. One of the wives of the great patriarch Jacob Rebecca, she brought idols with her that remained in the household as she was married to Jacob. King David, the great king of the Old Testament, his wife, Michael, she brought household idols with her into their relationship. And they get brought up later on like they're just part of the scenery. What blows my mind extremely is this little passage here in 1 Kings chapter 11. This is what the resume of King Solomon says. You guys remember who King Solomon is? He's the wisest man in the world, perhaps ever. Abundantly blessed by God. God has made his world incredibly fruitful. It says this in 1 Kings 11 verse 4. And when Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods. And his heart was not Wholly true to Yahweh, his God, as was the heart of his, David, his father. Listen, does anybody think that we're not vulnerable to idolatry in this world? Does anybody here think that, well, you know, those poor Old Testament dudes, if they just had what we had. All right, while you're turning to 1 Corinthians chapter 10 here, listen to this thought from Philip Ryken. I think an appropriate way for us to learn from this passage from 3,500 years ago. As we study Exodus, we see how the story of Israel's salvation gets retraced in the geography of our own souls. Like the Israelites, we are living in the wilderness between baptism, remember the Red Sea, and the promised land. When things get difficult, we often try to return to the Egypt of our Sin. So the story of the golden calf tells us more than what happened. It tells us what happens. It exposes the anatomy of our own idolatry. And so here we are. Here's here's how the great apostle Paul is going to pick up this story from Exodus chapter 32 and speak to a New Testament Christian. A New Testament Christian who now has the law of God written in his heart by the Holy Spirit which the Old Testament guy didn't have, who is empowered by the Spirit, who is convicted by the Spirit from the inside, who has a new life pulsing in his veins. He has all the equipment he needs. He is a new creation. That's who Paul is speaking to in this passage. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. For what I want you to know, brothers... Our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food 
And all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them. And the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased. For they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now, these things took place as examples for us. That we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters, New Testament Christian. As some of them were, as it is written. The people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents. Nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example. But they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. We are reading today Exodus chapter 32 because God wrote it down for you and I to benefit from it. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. Don't let anybody among you think this doesn't apply to you. Therefore, let anyone who thinks he stands, verse 13, no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, which by the time we get to the story in Exodus, we're going to find out how faithful God is. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. All right, go ahead. You can come back up, Ronald. All right, I know, I know we're into the message here. I know you're running out of gas, but, but stay with me just for a second. Because you just got introduced to something about man. Something that was as true in the Old Testament as it was in the New Testament. So you have an opportunity to look into your own life, your own world, your own experience. And figure out, what, what's this got to do with me? Well, Paul thought it had everything to do with you and me. Paul thought these things need to be told to the New Testament church. Here's one thing I want you to walk away from. Every creature has to figure out how to manage this internal impulse. Every creature. You never have a day off. The only time this will no longer have to be managed by you is is when you're dead and in heaven. Until that day, You have an internal impulse, a creaturely instinct that seeks a God. It seeks something to look to, to invest your hope and your security, your sense of purpose and pleasure. It's looking for that. You woke up this morning with it. Were you aware that that was something that you had to manage? And I want to shift, you know, God, God is found faithful in this passage. God is found faithful here in the New Testament. He's found faithful in the Old Testament. But somehow we get around this idea. As a matter of fact, often what's pulled out of verse 13 in 1 Corinthians, it sits by itself. It's, it's unassociated with idolatry. 
And so typically it's, hey, no temptation has overtaken you. It's not common to man. God's faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he'll provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure. There's a whole lot of stuff right there. But what I've seen Christians do with that verse is sort of take this, well, it's all on God. Right, so you're here this morning, and perhaps you're serving an idol right now, this morning. You're here this morning, and you're serving an idol that's wrecking you and your life and the people around you. I've had people sit in my office in that condition and tell me this. I'm just waiting for God to do something. Or I'm just waiting for God to show me what to do. Really? You're just waiting for God to do something. Well, you know, he said no temptation would overtake you. And with the temptation he would provide. Really? I mean, can you just read the next verse for me? Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. Why don't you let God worry about being faithful? He will be, by the way. But I don't get God's faithfulness turning into me pulling up a lounge chair. Because this warning says all this stuff happened because this is what's inside the human heart. And, and Mount Sinai puts it on display, but it travels into our world and it lives with us today. And I get a chance to recognize, I wake up looking to something, looking to someone besides God. That travels with me. And the Bible turns to me and says, hey, Keith, listen, you have a hope because God's going to be faithful. Now you flee from idolatry. Don't, don't sit here in your idolatry celebrating God being faithful. I don't get that in this passage. You get that in this passage? This passage teaches you to get the hell out of Dodge. That's what it teaches you to do. So I know, I, I, I know. And, now, and I'm, I'm lit up over this because idols are destructive little creatures. They're not like your casual bump in association with sin. They are looking to write your script because they're playing the role of God in your life. And you're going to have a bumper sticker on you that travels with you. And unfortunately, idols come along and stick their bumper sticker over God's bumper sticker. And that bumper sticker says, Addict. Pornography. Fear and insecurity, jealousy and rage, control. Right? All these things. Listen, they're not all just the ugly stuff, are they? And that becomes the script of your life. And what somebody can spend five minutes in, with you and know that you're a control monger. Know that you're in control of everything. What is that? You are so afraid. Fear has come into your life. It sat next to God and it said, Move over. I'm here now. I got this. They will answer to me now. And I'll make them afraid of everything. And they will seek to be in control of everything. Listen, you've got all kinds of idols that show up in your life. And this is how you discover them. Right now, in this moment, you look over at the sofa next to you and you say, I, I, I lack joy right now. I lack a sense of peaceful, hopeful future in my life right now. Now look down the sofa right now. And who do you see sitting there? What do you see sitting there? What is it that you're waiting for that thing to get in a certain condition or posture? And then you're going to be happy. 
see it? Don't just see me. I know y'all are staring at me right now. It's not me. I'm not sitting on your sofa. Something is. And, and it's, it's not a golden calf. And it's not a tiki figure. And it's not going to look like Buddha. But it's going to look like something that you're looking to. And you know, you get up in the morning, you look to it. Now, if that thing's in good condition, you feel one way about the day. If it's in a different condition, you feel a different way. That's how idols feel. And it's how God wants to feel in our lives. He wants to be the one that I wake up in the morning, I look to him and I feel a certain way about today because I've looked to him. And I feel a certain way about the future because I'm looking to him. And so let's pray for a moment. Let's just bow our heads together. nothing to say this morning that cures us of idolatry if the new birth didn't cure the New Testament Christian from idolatry if the power of the Holy Spirit present on a regular basis did not do it if the word of God preached written down recorded for us did not release Paul from having to instruct Christians to flee from idolatry Lord there's nothing I can say this morning that will cure us from idolatry So therefore, Lord, we are called into the arena with idolatry. We are called to manage idolatry as it seeks to gain your status in our lives. So Lord, as we will learn in the next couple of weeks about your faithfulness, let us listen for our own story. I don't see a golden calf sitting close by to me. Lord, I do see something. And I'm not a happy man or I'm not a happy woman. I'm not a sense of contentment and joy and fulfillment in my life right now because of that thing sitting over there. God, I pray right now our hearts would be full of the scripture and full of the power of God. What you instruct us to do is to flee from idolatry. Or whatever it is that's sitting on the sofa, it's not planning on going anywhere, so maybe we have to get up and move ourselves. Maybe this morning we need to make a decision, God, that I'm no longer going to be bound to that. I'm no longer going to be allied to that. Lord, the good and the future and the joy that awaits my life is not bound up in a husband or a wife or children. It's not bound up in how much money I have at the end of the month. It's not bound up in my retirement account. It's not bound up in my physical health. Lord, it's not bound up in these things. It's not bound up in people affirming me a certain way. It's not bound up in the days that I feel like I compare better than others. God, it's not bound up in any of those places. Yahweh, you and you alone are God to me. You and you alone are the one to whom I look. I am looking to you, Lord. You will bring me into the future. You will be my provision. You are the source of my fulfillment. You are pleasures forevermore. You are purpose in life. You are joy unspeakable.
unspeakable and full of glory. Lord, this morning, replace the idols that have taken your place in our hearts. God, we invite you. But God, we don't just invite you to be faithful. God, we are fleeing this morning. We are running for our spiritual lives. So God, today, this morning, this week, Lord, this message doesn't end because idolatry has to be managed. Tomorrow, God, I'd like to get an update from you as to how far have I run from that idol. How many steps are between me and it? And Lord, then on Tuesday, I'd like an update again. Is there more distance between me and that idol? And then Friday, I'd like an update again, Lord. Is that thing closing the ranks or am I distancing myself from it and stopping this looking to it in my heart? God, that, that's got to happen in the days ahead. And Lord, our great hope is you will be faithful to us to work in us to will and to do of your good pleasure. So God, what a hope we have this morning. Creatures made with an impulse to worship and have gods. Yet, Lord, you would be that one and only God to whom we would look. Well, let that be our story. Thank you for this story. Thank you for the grace it brings into our lives. The help that you give through your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. God bless you guys awesome week.